College football fans, welcome to episode 143 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined as always by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, college football fans and Husker fans. Hello, everybody. Uh, We're here, a father-son duo, to talk about uh, college football by college football fans for college football fans. And today we'll be diving into a lot of the national news that's been going on in the world of college football in terms of the Heisman, different coach hirings. Uh, things of that nature, as well as specific news related to Nebraska football, and of course, predicting the upcoming playoff games and the major bowl games. So, a lot to get to today. Yes, as there always is. That's true. You know, we are heading towards the uh, off season period here, but still feels like we'll have plenty to talk about. Oh, I think you're right about that. Yeah. All right, uh, but before we dive into those topics of conversation, we're going to stick with our tradition here and crack open a beverage. I've got one of my uh, Kona Brewing Company Longboard Island Lagers here, and I believe you've got one of your favorites too. I do. I have a traditional lager, Yingling, made in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. All right, here we go. All right, buddy. All right. Yes, and Cheers, uh, son. Cheers. Um, you know, the podcast will get a little bit more uh, deregularized, let's say, uh, because we're heading into this, you know, the bowl season and then the off season to come after that. Um, but we are definitely going to do podcasts here around the playoff, you know, and obviously the national championship game, the major bowls, um, you know, signing day for uh, Nebraska recruiting and all that sort of stuff. Um, so we'll still be coming to you guys with, Plenty of podcasts will be together coming up here for the Christmas holidays. So that's something to look forward to. Yes, absolutely. It's going to be great. I think you're, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so we're going to dive into the national news first and it feels appropriate to start with the biggest piece of news. That's unfortunately a sad piece of news, uh, which is that uh, Mississippi state's head coach, Mike Leach, uh, passed away this past week. Uh, he was 61 years old. I believe it was a um, heart issue um, that came to him kind of suddenly. Um, and there's been a lot of mourning in the college football world. There were a lot of players, obviously, that worked with him. And he's got an expansive coaching tree, you know, including people like Dave Aranda and others who uh, worked for him at various points. You know, he was a very uh, kind of eccentric coach, you know, not not the standard kind of guy, uh, which made him, you know, beloved by some and kind of hated by others. But you definitely had an opinion on him. Um, and there's been a lot of good memories floating around and different clips of him talking and things of that nature. So uh, sad week for college football. Absolutely. And, you know, <clears throat> there's a couple of things, you know, he um, he had a much larger impact than than you might. Um, normally assigned to a guy that won less than 60% of his games, right? Uh, he, he never was a guy with a large number of conference championships or and no national championships, but he was impactful in other ways because of that unique personality of his and his unique background. Uh, he was not a football player. He was a lawyer uh, who became a football coach. <laughs> And so 
a very unusual background. Clearly, extremely bright man, um, and uh, loved to talk. His brain was always running. It seemed, um, and uh, you know, he had a sleeping pattern and therefore a work schedule and work day schedule that was um, rather unique among especially power five coaches. I mean, it was not unusual for him to have a one o'clock or two o'clock in the afternoon coaches meeting where most coaches are in the office, you know, before the break of dawn practically and that sort of stuff. He uh, was not like that at all. You know, he would have his uh, coaches get together at like one o'clock in the afternoon. And sometimes he'd be late to that, and you know, that sort of stuff. But then he might work way into the night. Um, he would, was, very generous with his time and his treasure, frankly. Lots of great stories out there of, of things that he did uh, the, to show compassion for folks and that sort of stuff. But he was also tough as nails, and so there are certainly those stories out there as well. One of my favorites, it's actually one that I sent you a, uh, 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 I think it was a Twitter post that, was, that linked to the story. But I, I remember it because I, I remember when it actually happened. Um, when he was an offensive coordinator at um, under Bob Stoops at Oklahoma, he purposefully created a false play sheet mm -hmm. just before the uh, Texas Oklahoma Red River shootout, and uh, and then um, choreographed with a uh, you know like third string quarterback or whatever, uh, made it real obvious that he was handing him the play sheet, and then instructed the kid to. Uh, like put it in his uh, belts or in his pants, like he like he was thinking he would would secure it that way, and then it would fall out very obviously, and then they would walk away and leave it on the field, and and sure enough, Texas took it and you know consumed it and prepared for it had not only the list of plays but. Uh, you know, back then, uh, a, a, a somewhat new thing that coaches were doing was scripting the first series, scripting the first drive or two, you know, first 20 plays, whatever, where they would have predetermined what they were going to call the first 20 plays, no matter what uh, the circumstance was with very slight variation, right? Uh, and so he had that on there. Of course, they were the wrong plays. And, uh, and then uh, as a result, they got uh, a 17-point lead on on uh, texas before texas knew what was going on <laughs> yep because they were wide open yeah i did see that that video that you sent and i had heard about that story previously you know as people were reminiscing about mike leach stories um i forget who it was but it was one of the um commentators on es for espn uh talked about his time or his experience with mike leach because he mostly interacted on the media side, but apparently he also recruited him back when this guy was a high school player. Yes. Um, uh -huh. And he talked about how, you know, Leach's philosophy was to go against the grain when it came to like throwing the ball, you know, even if it was third and two or whatever, he'd go for like a long, you know, pass or wasn't afraid of like running up the score on people, you know, cause he's like, I'm just running my offense here, you know? So he kind of had his own, like you said, unique philosophy, perhaps because right. he didn't have a traditional football background, you know, and he managed to uh, pull off some big upsets doing things like that, even though, like you say, his consistency wasn't the best in terms of premier coaches. Right, right. But, but as, as you mentioned early on in this, his coaching tree uh, is, is massive 
and really, really impressive. I mean, uh, you mentioned a few, but, but, uh, Lincoln Riley is on that list. Uh, Dana Holgerson is on that list. Uh, Cliff Kingsbury played for him and, and coached under him. Uh, I mean, just, and it's, and it's not just offensive masterminds. There's also some, uh, Ruffin McNeil, who's a great defensive coordinator for him, who went on to be a head coach. Um, you know, just a, a very, very large number of people who influenced, who were influenced by him and this whole, whatever you want to call it, uh, type of offense. He opened the door to some outside the box thinking the idea of throwing the ball 70 times in a game was, was unheard of before Leach, you know, uh, and a few others started doing it. Right. So he was way at the beginning of that process and, and the sophistication of his system was was just a little more well thought out than than anybody else's at the time. That's right. So we uh, we bid farewell to Coach Leach. Hope he's in a better place now. Um, and uh, you know we'll see. I'm sure there'll be plenty of tributes to him. You know on the days where his teams play in the bowl games and things like that. Right, right, um, absolutely. One of the other big pieces of news was that, of course, the uh, Heisman Trophy was awarded this past week. Um, we talked previously about the various candidates and how Caleb Williams seemed to be the favorite going into it, and it was a little bit unsurprising that he ended up winning it oh, with a pretty sizable percentage of the votes, uh, which now uh, it's an extremely impressive set for Lincoln Riley in that he's coached three of the last five Heisman Trophy winners specifically all quarterbacks right i know that that is that is crazy uh, uh impressive i mean that's that's just nuts and and again there's 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 the mike leach connection right there right mm-hmm. um and he knows he knows quarterbacks and knows how to utilize a passing game and uh and it's showing up with the success that he's having now at two different stops at two different locations so very impressive definitely um, another big one that we mentioned last week was that um, UCLA had this Regents meeting that was going to decide kind of their fate in terms of whether they're going to the Big Ten or not. And it came out that uh, they will be going to the Big Ten. Uh, the Regents did add in some stipulations about, you know, like travel expenses for flights and, you know, player time and things of that nature. But that seemed to be all pretty minor stuff to me. So. Uh, well, and, and there, and and the the other thing that's still open ended on that is there is going to be some kind of financial compensation that UCLA is going to be obligated to provide to the University of Cal, uh, Berkeley, uh, which is the other major uh, Pac-12 school within the California system. There's a bunch of other system schools, but the only other one that is in the Pac-12 is is Cal, right? University of California, Berkeley. And so there is going to be a check written annually by UCLA to, you know, offset uh, the loss of revenue that's going to be caused by their departure to Cal. And so, Mm. you know, UCLA is going to have to figure that into their overall budget. Right. But, you know, obviously I think we're, well, it would have been interesting if UCLA had uh, pulled out and then the Big Ten had like announced in a few days later that Oregon and like Washington were uh, coming to the Big Ten because um, uh, the commissioner made it clear that, you know, there was a backup plan if UCLA didn't come, um, which could have really shaken yep. things up in the Pac-12. 
And that actually was a very wise move by his part, whether that was true or not. Simply by saying that, you know, the, the powers that be that, are, that were in that regents meeting and stuff, you know, I'm sure we're very much aware that, hey, guys, if you want to, you know, stand your ground here, if this is the hill you want to die on, this is what's likely to happen. You know, we may we may preserve UCLA and keep them from going to the Big Ten, but we may lose the the war, so to speak, uh, to win this battle because we may end up losing, you know, three other Pac-12 schools, and now we're really in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. as a as a conference, right? Because yeah, the impetus of this whole thing was like that. Yeah, they were you know leaving their traditional roots and leaving Cal uh, kind of behind, right? And hurting their profitability, you know, and they're mm-hmm. the master school, so to speak, in that system. Well, so, well, and, and another thing that we're going to be keeping an eye on, um, uh, as we go forward that I, uh, also just, that came out literally in the same article that I read, which is that there are some state, uh, politicians, representatives that are, um, um, going to introduce a bill that, is going to somehow uh, potentially restrict the number of hours uh, that uh, California athletes can spend on their sport that would be devastating to all California-based schools because it might very much influence the players' decisions to choose those schools going forward uh, because, if it, it, because it would be more restrictive than NCAA guidelines. Right. So if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna go to a California school, then you would only be able to practice 20 hours a week instead of 25 or whatever they would come up with, and and you know including travel time and all this. So if they somehow restricts that, uh, then all of a sudden you know an athlete who's deciding between Cal and Washington, let's say, or Oregon, then that might very well make them choose the non-California school. So that they can maximize the development of their athletic endeavor. Yeah, I can guarantee you, Lincoln Riley is not happy about the idea of that with him going to the Big Ten soon. Well, right, exactly. Although, and, and again, I don't know how much uh, even a state law like that could uh, be imposed on a private school. Mm. I think it could it could be imposed imposed on public schools, but I, I don't know what its level of uh, uh, power or authority to demand that. Of a, of a of a place yeah. like Stanford or USC. I don't know, but there's typically there's ways they can say if you're a private school that accepts state funding, then right. you have to follow X, and pretty much all of them do. So, well, yeah, and and that would be the thing. Exactly right. So, but but bottom line is, I hope it goes nowhere. I hope it's just bloviating because I think that would be a bad road to go down. But but we'll see. Yeah. Um, and there are some uh, big coaching hires that uh, we've had on our docket in past episodes, but they've been so jam-packed we haven't had time to get to them. Um, so the big one is that uh, Deion Sanders is now the new coach at Colorado. He was formerly at uh, Jacksonville State. And, no, just uh, Jackson Jackson State. Okay, sorry. Not Jacksonville. Sorry, yep. Jackson State. Um, and, uh, he's been making some waves, uh, just with his big social media presence, you know, and 
the kind of different uh, mentality he takes to uh, coaching, let's say. Um, you know, it seems like some people really dig it. Some people kind of hate it. I know there's already been some there was like a defacing of his mural at Jackson State because he left or something like that. So mm-hmm. uh, he's a he's a big uh, gamble, I would say, for Colorado, if he's going to be like a big success or a big failure. Um, but you know what? I, I, actually, for a school like Colorado, uh, who, uh, you know, like us, is looking to do a, a massive rebuild, they chose to swing for the fence. And this thing is either going to go really, really well for them. And if it does, the reality is he's probably only there for three, maybe four years if it goes really well. Right. Right. And if it, it, and if it goes really poorly, okay, so they've lost a year or two, but they were already down and they're, they're getting him for a, a bargain financially compared to what they might've had to pay in today's market. Uh, for a more experienced coach, right? So they're probably getting away with a lower total cost for their coaching staff for their Division One program than they might have otherwise been uh, required or or, or likely uh, committed to. Although right? you would even you even said because the athletic director admitted that uh, they didn't have the money necessarily to pay him what he was owed right away, even though he is right. a lower amount. They that's right. They have. They have, uh, yeah, he did, he did acknowledge that, that there are, there's some financial issues that need to be worked out. And so it'll be very interesting to see just how big of a, of a a budget that, uh, that they're able to allocate for assistant coaches, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and uh, Colorado's facilities are good, but, but when compared to, you know, a lot of other power fives, even within the PAC 12, I wouldn't describe them as being near the top from a facility standpoint. So they're going to, they're going to be behind the eight ball on that. They are definitely behind the eight ball on the whole NIL thing. But again, with a personality and a, like like Coach Prime, uh, they might very well be able to close that gap very rapidly. Uh, uh, and I, 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 I have read some indications that Colorado is even revisiting their historically h- higher academic standards. They've, they've held themselves as, you know, the, the the Berkeley of the of the mountains, uh, and that they really pride themselves on being a, a high level academic institution, and their entrance requirements have always been a little more stringent than a lot of other schools that they were competing against. Uh, apparently, they're uh, they're looking to create a, a new entry path for athletes that they didn't previously have, and so if they're willing to make those kinds of compromises that they have heretofore not been willing to do, that will help. Uh, uh, Dion, you know, be successful, right? Uh, but again, they're they're selling themselves to the devil a little bit, and that uh, he's a massive cult of personality. So if he's successful, it's all going to be about him. And when he leaves, it'll be like popping the balloon, right? Well, and, and to your point from earlier, this year they were one and eleven. Um, so even if he is a failure, you know, it's not like he can get much lower than that per se. You know, unless right. he like breaks the major rules, you know, that gets them right. fined or sanctioned by the NCA, which could happen. Um, but sure. you know, I see their kind of mentality with it, I guess. Right. I, I, I understand the hire and I, it actually makes sense. I'm glad we didn't go down that road, even though he may end up being more successful than our, our new head coach. I wouldn't have wanted to, 
do that experiment in Nebraska, and he definitely would have been short-term there. He would have not fit at all with the Nebraska brand or, or you know, state um, uh, mood, um, where Colorado is a little bit more uh, willing to get be out there, I think, uh, right. both as an institution and as a state. Um, uh, but it's going to be interesting to see how his approach works, right, with these kids. And I, I, I think he might be fabulous with the whole portal thing. But he, he hasn't even started recruiting really yet. All he's, he's recruiting by, by proxy using his social media presence for the most part. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yep. It's a, like we said, it's a different way of doing things, and I totally agree with you. I think he would have been a major uh, culture mismatch at Nebraska, so I'm glad we uh, didn't go that route. Um, right. The other big one was um, Hugh Freeze is the new coach of Auburn. Uh, he was at Liberty previously. Um, so another kind of example of uh, hiring a head coach from a smaller institution, kind of promoting him into the big leagues. Um, I don't know as much about him. You know, uh, it sounded like there were some rumors that uh, Auburn was pursuing Matt Rule uh, at a certain point. Um, Correct. And that uh, that didn't end up happening. Um, so I don't know if yep. this Hugh for you guys was kind of a fallback plan for them or not. No, no I, I wouldn't necessarily call him a fallback plan. But certainly when they initially um, fired their coach and were in the market, I think they reached out to Matt because he had not yet made a commitment to, to Nebraska. But I think from the very get go, uh, Matt was down the road with Nebraska and was going to see that through yay or nay. Um, and was not as interested in the Auburn job as the Nebraska job. The idea of getting back to the big 10, I think was much more intriguing to him than being at, you know, the second fiddle school in the state of Alabama within the sec East. Right. right. So um, and not to mention uh, Lane Kiffin. There were heavy rumors that he was going to be going to Auburn, and he publicly said, you know, no, that's not true. Um, right. So, you know, that's another one where they kind of uh, didn't get the guy they were hoping for. Right. Well, and now understand, let me give you this little bit of background with Hugh Freeze. I actually think Hugh, Hugh Freeze is an excellent choice for them. I think uh, um, if, he, if he has, in fact, learned from his mistakes – he might be the best fit they've had in, in quite some time, like four or five coaches deep, right? Uh, because he is an SEC guy. He actually was the first one to turn around Ole Miss football. Uh, so he has been a head coach in the SEC before, uh, and he was fired unceremoniously because he ended up in a bunch of uh, hot water with NCAA violations. And that caused him to be fired from um, – from, uh, Ole Miss. Um, and so uh, he needed to kind of re recalibrate and, and reestablish his relationship with uh, the NCAA and, and you know, just uh, uh, let a little time lapse, right, before he right. could be considered without negative consequences. Well, although my understanding is that uh, he's been successful at Liberty, you know, at that level. Oh, yeah, uh, but, absolutely. But he hasn't uh, stayed out of the hot water, right? There are other allegations against him for misconduct and things of that nature. At, at Liberty? No, I, I, I don't know about that. That's probably news to me. But no, he had a bunch of outstanding uh, allegations. Basically, he was... He was making arrangements for play, players and recruits to uh, have um, liaisons with 
women uh, and he was using his, you know, state provided phone, cell phone to make the arrangements. And so they were able to um, prove that right by, by, by looking at his cell phone records. Um, so he got himself into a lot of hot water and, 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 but by going to a place like Liberty, which is a Christian college, you know, he was able to establish maybe some credibility, some recovery of his, of his reputation by, by going to a Christian organization and coaching there and being successful. And I'm sure he changed some things of how he coached because of that circumstance too. So, so he might be a way better coach now. I, I actually think it's a pretty darn good hire. He was a phenomenal recruiter. Now, whether that was because he was breaking rules, um, that, which may be true. I mean, he, he was basically willing to, uh, do it at, at, at any case. So anyway, uh, it'll be, it'll be an interesting, uh, thing to watch how, how, how effective will he be as a recruiter? And I, I don't doubt his coaching acumen. He's, he's been very successful that way. He beat, uh, and during his old Miss stint, he beat, um, um, Nick Saban twice. Right. Yep. That's definitely uh two feathers in your cap there. So like you say, it'll be an interesting one to watch, similar to the Deion Sanders thing, right? You know, although he's more of a traditional coach, but another interesting hire, you know, not necessarily the big name guy, um, but with a good coaching background. So we'll have to see. Right, right. Um, switching over to some Nebraska news, um, we talked about the different coordinators that have been confirmed on last week's episode. Uh and uh, we have a couple more confirmations. Uh, one was uh, something we mentioned that uh, Donovan Riala uh, is somebody who's staying on from the previous staff as our offensive line coach. Um, I kind of expressed some of my skepticism about that on last week's episode because of uh, you know how poor our offensive line has been uh, this year. Uh, although to your the point that you raised at the time. Um, some of that comes down to our strength and conditioning coach, you know, trying to make our guys too big, you know, and he does have some a good background from the NFL and came, you know, with some accolades and stuff. So maybe he's got the mind to do it right in a new system with Matt Rule. Um, but I don't know. It's a little bit iffy for me personally. Yeah, it is. Um, but the But the bottom line is, is, this is a coach that really only had one year uh, of history with us at Nebraska. Uh, he was he was given a, a tough hand to begin with. Um, you can argue that you would have liked to have seen more uh, improvement over the over the course of the season if he was really an outstanding coach and his techniques and his and his coaching style was r- really having a positive impact on the offensive line. You might have expected to see some more improvement in our offensive line performance and play over the course of the season. And that did not happen. Also, he wasn't necessarily highly visible as a recruiter, but uh, I will say this, he does represent to some degree the, uh, the uh, profile of what it appear appears to be rules, um, you know, preference, which, which is for his assistants to be young, hungry guys, who are ready to prove themselves or wanting to prove themselves who have a, enough of a philosophical match with, um, with rule that they would be successful. Right. Um, uh, and, and I think that because Matt rule was an, is an old offensive line coach from his uh, earlier days. 
Uh, I think he probably feels like we've got some guys on staff that can be there to support um, Donovan as he gets better as a coach. Donovan was clearly a very good offensive lineman in college. Uh, uh, he had some time in the NFL. His brother is a legend at Nebraska and right. was, you know, won a, a bunch of national awards. So, so there's a great connection there. He is, uh, um, 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 Polynesian. And so uh, that is a, uh, that's a nice, uh, thing to have on your staff. Um, when your, uh, priority is to get big, strong, athletic linemen, uh, the Polynesian culture tends to produce more than its fair share of those types of athletes. Uh, and so, you know, maybe using those connections and that family connection, uh, will allow them to, uh, you know, get some inroads in recruiting. So it's a, it's a wait and see. If it doesn't work out, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Coach Rule would make a change with him rather quickly. You know, he, 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 he'll have a fairly short leash, I think, if he doesn't produce results rather quickly. Yeah, I think that's fair. To your point, I remember when he was announced, you know, as part of the change-ups on Scott Frost's st staff, he was one that was received rather warmly, you know, because of his Nebraska connection and those other traits he mentioned. So uh, we'll have to see if uh, under a different leader, uh, those talents can bloom more, let's say. Exactly right. Yep. Um, yep. The other big one, and this is a big one, is that uh, Tony White is our new defensive coordinator. Uh, he comes from Syracuse. Um, and I think he, he addresses somewhat uh, the criticism you had on the previous episode that uh, Matt was going for guys that were kind of younger, less experienced, um, you know, not as big of names as you might expect, especially given the uh, amount of money that Matt has to hire assistants. Um, Tony White was a name that did uh, make some waves, you know, got some attention. Uh, he runs a 3-3-5 defense, uh, which is a little unusual. Um, but has been effective uh, for Syracuse for sure. Yes, he, he's done a, a good job at Syracuse. He had a short window of opportunity and with some success at Arizona State before he went to Syracuse, but it's not like he's a 15-year defensive coordinator or anything. Um, but he has a great lineage. Uh, he comes from uh, you know, a coaching uh, tree that is highly respected and um, – Again, he's a, still a relatively young guy who um, doesn't necessarily have Matt Rule connections. Which so the criticism that you know Matt was only hiring guys that he had coached with previously. You know this is going outside his coaching tree a little bit for Matt, and that's uh, that's probably not a bad thing, especially if they believe that the that their philosophy is similar. And clearly, Matt did some homework. I think I, I think Matt struck out on a few of his uh, top choices, frankly. Uh, and that's why he ended up arriving at uh, Tony White. Uh, but I don't think it's a, necessarily a bad hire. I'm certainly willing to embrace it and go with it. I love uh, in watching film. I love the aggressive nature of, of his uh, approach. Um, although um, it has, like any uh, scheme where you try to be aggressive, you're also exposing yourself to weaknesses. And the key is, is that when you're aggressive, you have to get there. You have to get home to that, you know, blitz has to negatively affect the play because if it doesn't, you're going to get burnt, right? And, and you have to have a certain type of athlete, but, but it's the kind of athletes that tend to be more plentiful, right? And a 3-3-5, three, three, you're, you're playing with, you know, five and sometimes six defensive backs 
lots of linebackers and uh, um, lots of speed. So that's the premise of the three, three, five, lots of flexibility. Don't know where it's coming from, that sort of thing, but you still have to have enough beef and strength and talent up front that you can stop a general power running game. Here's another thing to think about that I think our listeners would, would uh, uh, be interested in. And that is that, um, you know, yes, historically in the last 10 years, uh, big 10 football on the West division, you know, it has been dominated by teams like Iowa and Wisconsin and uh, Minnesota, you know, and even Illinois here recently, all teams that tended to be quite, quite uh, dominant power running teams, right? But Wisconsin's got a new coach and their new offensive coordinator uh, probably is not going to run the football as much as Wisconsin has historically ran the football. Um, Purdue just lost their coach, right? And so their new coaching staff might very well usher in uh, a more wide, wide open spread type offense. Uh, Iowa, you know, I don't know what's going to happen there, but I think there's probably going to be some changes there. They've really struggled offensively. If it wasn't for the great defense they've played in recent years, they would really be in trouble. So you start looking at, at all of these teams from the West and you begin to realize that, you know, the days of having to deal with, you know, four or five power running teams without having to also be able to handle the spread type of formations that Ohio State has now with USC and UCLA coming in, spread a, a wide open, Penn State wide open, you know, the only one I would say is more traditional is Michigan. So um, it, it, it no longer makes sense that you have to only be able to focus on stopping the running game. You're going to have to be able to handle modern offenses, period. Right. Well, not to mention with the entrance of USC and UCLA, um, the wide expectation is that the divisions are going to be uh, changed up because we'll have right. uh, 16 teams 16. now. Right. Um, we'll either have nothing or we'll have pods. And I think, you know, I know a lot of people didn't like the uh, legends and leaders division, right? Which was what it was when uh, Nebraska originally joined the conference. Uh, but then at the same time, this more geographic East and West has shown that the East is significantly tougher than the West, right? That has been proven year over year as things have played out. Um, so I, my expectation is that whatever the new system is, it will try to, especially with USC and UCLA, right, being very geographically far from a lot of these teams, it'll try to balance things out more in a, you know, talent, prestige level, uh, which means we might be playing, you know, the Ohio States, the Penn States, the Michigans more regularly. Um, and so, like you say, we need to be prepared for a wide variety of offenses. Right. Well, uh, I don't know that we'll be playing them more regularly. I actually think we'll be playing them less regularly because we're adding two more teams. But both of those teams we're adding are are quite good. So they're gonna they're gonna be entered into the mix, right? We're gonna still be playing a lot of quality opponents, no matter what. That, that's the bottom line. Uh, right. So we, we we just need to and and the and the types of offenses and talent that those schools have is going to be uh, uh, wide in variety. And you better have a defense that can do all of that stuff. 
I'll say so. in terms of Tony White, uh, you know, I looked at some of the online reaction, you know, on Reddit and stuff. And, you know, the Syracuse fans seem to think highly of him and were, you know, sad to see him go, but understanding. Um, so my impression is that, you know, it's a solid hire, you know, pretty good hire, you know, not not a yep. great hire, not the best that Matt Rule potentially could have gotten, um, but a solid one. And uh, one, like you say, that uh, has the potential to really change things up, you know, and give us a different look than we've had in previous years. Um, but it yep. all depends on what sort of athletes you're able to get um, and how good that coaching ends up really being. Yep. I agree. I think that uh, I'm reasonably optimistic with that hire. Um, uh, uh, you know, um, I am pleased with what I'm seeing out of these guys in their first days on the job. I think they're going to be very high energy as a staff and, uh, and they have a plan and they're going to execute to that plan. They're going to have, you know, a, a, a great deal of confidence in what they're trying to do. Um, and, uh, and I like that. Yep. Um, they're, they're going to work hard. Yep. Well, and speaking of that, um, obviously, uh, recruiting is, a the kind of topic on everybody's lips here as we're getting close to signing day. Um, and I know, you know, we, we've talked about Matt rule having that grinder mindset, right. That Trev Alberts wants, it seems he's been living up to that at least so far in terms of traveling a lot and, you know, hitting the recruiting trail, even though he's getting it to it quite late, you know, because of his, uh, hiring more recently here as Nebraska's head coach. So there's been lots of news about transfers out of the program, transfers into the program, recruits committing to Nebraska, recruits going elsewhere, et cetera, et cetera. It's been too much for me to follow, to be perfectly honest. Um, so I don't really have an assessment of where we're at, but I'm also keeping my expectations low because I know that Matt Rule is coming in late and we suck. Um, so, you know, I'm not really uh, asking for the sky here myself. Right. Well, and I, I think uh, it, it'll, it'll be wise for us to wait and let the dust settle and get at least through the first signing period date here in later December and, um, and see where it lands, uh, already. And that's where the work ethic and stuff, uh, you know, you, you can see how hard these guys have been working. It appears that whatever message they're delivering is at least intriguing enough to folks. Cause we're getting a lot of, a lot of people who are reasonably highly respected as, as players, whether they are freshmen, I mean, uh, high school seniors or, they are transfer portal guys. They're choosing to come and at least take a look at Nebraska. And we'll find out how many of those actually end up signing with us. But if we can get a good portion of those guys, um, then we will have made ourselves, put ourselves in a position to be better next year than we would have otherwise. We're also obviously losing a number of players, which almost always happens when uh, um, you have a, a new coach and a change like this. Um, but honestly, there's only two or three of those, you know, 15 players or so that I would look at and say, okay, that's, that's a major loss. Um, uh, um, the, in other ways you look at it and say, those are scholarships that now Matt has available to him that he can now fill with other players. And he doesn't have to fill them all right away. He's got lots of time to figure that out. He's going to have a whole nother window here after the December signing date until the February signing date. And then he's going to have a whole other window, basically, uh, of evaluation during spring uh, practice, and then another small window to look at uh, transfer uh, portal people again. And all he needs to do is 
make sure that he's not above 85 by basically around August 1st. So, so he can still make significant changes to this roster and get the right balance of, you know, each position that he wants and all that, and hopefully upgrade the overall talent and speed that he's looking for so that next fall, you know, he's got some athletes that he can work with. Right. And speaking of which, um, I remember right around the time that Matt Rule was announced as the coach, I saw an interview with Casey Thompson from some local reporter who was asking him about his impressions of Matt Rule. He said that he'd had a short one-on-one meeting with the coach as well as hearing his spiel to the whole team and said that he liked, you know, what he generally heard uh, about you know, Matt Rule's work ethic and the type of offense he was interested in running and things like that, but uh, obviously kept things noncommittal on whether he'd be returning and things like that because he just transferred into the program this year uh, under Mark Whipple and Scott Frost, both of whom are, of course, gone. Um, so I'm curious to hear, uh, A, do you think Casey's performance this year was good enough that we definitely want him to stay on as our starting quarterback? And B, do you think he will stay? I definitely want, would love to see him stay, and I think he could really thrive in what in a system that Matt Rule is going to try to implement. Uh, and I, I think, as, you know, presuming he's healthy and can be the player he was before. Now he's got some off-season surgery that he's doing. So if he actually intended to go into the NFL or anything like that, um, uh, you know, you don't want to do that off of the edge of a of a of a surgery, right? And so since he's having surgery, uh, I think it's in his best interest to stick around. Uh, you sure don't want to change to another school and have to learn another offensive system. So I'm actually quite optimistic that Casey's going to stick around. Um, and I think he had a, he got a, a pretty good feel from Matt rule that Matt understands what he's got in Casey as an experienced, mature guy. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, uh, I would expect Matt uh, well, and he is trying to add to his quarterback room to create some competition there. Because frankly, uh, behind we, we we proved this season that behind Casey we didn't have much prepared talent. Now maybe that was because the coaches weren't preparing them very well. You know that could be uh, part partly the the staff, right? The old staff. But but you know what? At some point, you got to put the burden on the player. You still should be prepared to play. And there were times when our guys weren't, weren't yeah. ready. No. They just weren't. And so that's still on them as an individual player. Even if you're just getting mental reps, you need to be more ready to go than, than they demonstrated. So, so uh, I can see why, you know, a new coach would come in and say, okay, I need to get some, I need to get some other folks. Right. Yeah, no, I, I would totally agree with that. And I agree with you. You know, uh, there were times where I was frustrated with Casey, you know, where he missed, uh, passers that were open and things like that you know he kind of showed some inconsistency and in that sometimes he could throw a real beauty of a pass and other times he would miss stuff that seemed pretty easy um but you know we we clearly saw when we didn't have him our offense was much worse you know when he showed a lot of grit in fighting through injuries you know and dealing with the fact that our offense line wasn't able to protect him very well um so i'm definitely in the camp that uh as long as yeah the uh, surgeries don't uh really impact his overall performance i would definitely like to see him back next year and i agree that getting a you know good freshman or sophomore uh quarterback into the room to start building for the future because casey is on the older side so we won't be around for long uh is also a smart decision 
Yep, I, I agree. I agree. And I, and I think Casey's old enough that he's not going to freak out because the coaches do that, right? It's not like he's going to get all offended because they went out and got a portal guy. Right, exactly. Is there anything else you want to say about the uh, general Nebraska news before we move on to our predictions for the upcoming games? Well, I would say this, you know, again, uh, overall, I'm pleased with the coach coaches uh, because I I get where Matt's going. It's not the staff or the type of staff that I was hoping he would put together. So I would acknowledge that there's some disappointment in that. But I'm also optimistic that this is a guy that clearly has a plan, knows what he's doing. I love the match between him and athletic director Trev Albers. I just feel like they are on the same page. They have the same purposes and goals, and that, I think, is going to lead to positive, positive things uh, for Nebraska's program. Now, championships, I don't know. But improvement and competitiveness, I absolutely am, am, am uh, excited about that. I'm on that train, right? So um, uh, the, the big issue now is why has this staff not been completed? Why don't we have a wide receiver coach? You know, we have a, we think, a linebacker coach, but I'm not – Absolutely sure, because it's never been formally announced. Um, and uh, so there's some issues, right, uh, with this whole deal. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know. I, and, and I'm hopeful that that's because these are some really high-end coaches that are unavailable because they're, they have current jobs that, that they want to complete before they get in there. Or is it because they've lost, um, they lost out? You know, the whole Mickey Joseph thing certainly – put the whole wide receiver coach into a tailspin and then we had a, a quarterback's coach who was all but locked and loaded and then because of some changes in within the staff at the place he was he was a coach at at the Rams and and the Rams offensive coordinator just announced that he's leaving and so now this guy probably believes that he has got a pretty decent shot at at moving up the ranks within the Rams organization and uh, uh, he's chosen instead to stay out there I think he had basically agreed in principle to be our quarterbacks coach and then had to back out. And he, he's a, a alumnus and, uh, you know, fellow, uh, previous, uh, Nebraska Cornhusker. So that was disappointing, but I kind of get it. I understand why, uh, you know, he would choose that as a family decision. So, right. Yeah, no, that, that all makes sense. And I agree with you. you no, know, I think we mentioned on the last podcast that we were hoping that by this point, you know, we're recording on a Thursday, the 15th here of December, um, you know, that we would have uh, the majority of the coaching decisions figured out by now, you know, and we only have two new additions. Um, so there are some outstanding things we're still waiting to hear on, perhaps after the you know, bowl games or NFL games, we'll get some more confirmations from uh, other coaches who are on other staffs. Um, but uh, that's definitely something we'll be watching out for in future podcasts. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so talking about uh, the games here, of course, we've got to talk about the one game that happened this past weekend, which was the historic traditional Army-Navy game. Uh, always a good time. Um, and interestingly, uh, this game ended up uh, going into a double overtime uh, with Army winning uh, 20 to 17. And it's the first time in history uh, that it has ever gone into overtime, which was a real shock to me that they've been playing for this long when it's never happened before. Well, uh, keep in mind, Alex, overtime didn't exist for the majority of those years. Well, that's true. So it was just a draw. But yeah, uh, the, the, the bottom line is, is that 
since the overtime was introduced, uh, you, you know, uh, especially with the kind of similar styles that those two teams tended to run for many years, uh, where they were almost mirror images of each other, you would have thought that there would have been the possibility of some overtime situations and it had never happened. But, uh, but love the environment there. It's, it's on my bucket list. One of these years, especially if I come east again um, for the winter, I could see myself doing that uh, someday. Yeah, no, that's something I'd like to do someday, too. Um, I watched the highlights of the game, um, and it was, you know, your traditional <clears throat> Army-Navy and that they were running it the vast majority of the time. You know, I think there was like maybe two completed forward passes in the whole game or something like that. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's dad's kind of football. Um, that's right. But the real key was that, uh, so it was uh, 10 to 10 at the end of uh, regulation, um, and both teams scored touchdowns uh, in the first overtime, and then the second, a Navy was having a good drive and was like right on the goal line, and then they fumbled it on the goal line, and Army came up with the ball, which was obviously huge. So at that point, Army played it very conservative, kick the uh field goal for the win um you know so i think the navy fans have to be pretty darn disappointed in that you know obviously they had a a pretty big upset uh near the end of their season um so i think felt they probably felt like they had some momentum going into this but uh army ended up pulling it out yep and uh it uh it was kind of weird that I, I i i i was not a big fan even though i love nasa not a big fan of the naval uniforms. I, I, I prefer the old tradition and I, and I hope that maybe they gravitate back to that. Uh, the, uh, uh, the interesting thing is, is even though they played well, uh, Navy's coach was relieved of his duties after that game. And, um, and he's a guy that has done quite well there, frankly, um, over the years, but not in recent years. He, he oversaw a six or seven year, you know, um, uh, streak of victories over or over army. Um, uh, and so he was doing really well. Uh, and then, uh, and then, uh, all of a sudden army got some new leadership and, and kind of righted the ship. And, and now, you know, it's kind of swinging back a little bit towards army in recent years. And I guess that was enough to make them decide that they needed to move in a different direction. Yeah. Now I picked up on the NASA helmets as well. Uh, I had, was under the impression that that was like, you know, kind of like a one-time thing, but you're saying this has been something they've been doing more recently. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know how many years it goes back. Um, it, this might be the first year. I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember, but I just, it, it, it struck me that oh, this is not, it's not the look I remember from, from that game and the many years I watched it growing <laughs> up and, and even as an adult here. That's true. Um, all right. And so now, of course, we've got the uh, bowl games. Um, so we're going to do some kind of quick fire, uh, just win loss predictions for some of the, uh, you know, more me medium tier bowls and then give our proper score predictions for the bigger bowl games. And of course, the uh, big playoff games to end off this podcast. Okay. Now, here, here's the one caveat we've got to remember. I mean, there are still announcements going on like, um, who was it? Some some quarterback just announced today that they're going to forego their bowl game. I think you might be thinking of Purdue's quarterback. Purdue's quarterback, yes. Purdue's quarterback. And But there are other uh, – Ohio State had a player who was opting out of a, one of the playoff games. 
you know, uh, 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 because he, um, he, he went into the portal. <laughs> I mean, okay. it's just crazy how this stuff is happening. So there, there could still be some major moments that'll happen that would sway something that we are talking about today. Yep. That's true. And that's one of the reasons we waited to do our predictions until today I, instead I of, uh, last week. So. I, I thought that that would stabilize a little bit, but again, in this new world that we're living in, it's not always obvious. That's true. So, uh, so we have the uh, guaranteed rate bowl uh, with Wisconsin versus Oklahoma State. Uh, obviously, that's interesting because Wisconsin has their new coach with Luke Fickle, um, and Oklahoma State had a really great start to their year, but kind of a disappointing end. Uh, so yeah. that's a matchup I think is pretty close to even, so I'm curious to see how that one goes. Uh, I'll go ahead and side with the Big Ten here. I'm going to say that Wisconsin wins. Gotcha. You know, that is going to be interesting because the, the, the real question is going to be how much does Luke Fickle and his, and his new staff, how much do they um, change up? Uh, you know, are they coaching it? Uh, I'm assuming Luke and his staff are, are coaching this game. Well, and so, remember, um, the former head coach is staying on as the defensive right. coordinator for this bowl game, but then is leaving. I know. But the, but the offense, is it changing up or are they going to, you know, leave things the way they are and, and just work with the kids. So uh, that's a lot of change, right. Going on. Uh, so I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to go with Oklahoma state, not because I think they're, they're the better team, but because the circumstance in Wisconsin is, is so uh, unstable. Now it could be that because of all that newness, it's virtually impossible for Oklahoma state to prepare. They have no idea what this team they're playing is going to look like. So uh, um, a lot of unknown there for Oklahoma state, but, but uh, uh, I, I just feel like they should have the advantage. Oklahoma state should. And so I'm going to go with them. That's totally fair. Uh, in the Alamo bowl, we have uh, Texas versus Washington. Uh, Texas ranked 20th, while Washington is 12th. I want Washington to win, of course, because we want uh, Texas to lose, obviously. Um, and in this case, I'm going to go with my heart. I'll say that Washington wins over Texas, even though Texas does have a lot of talent. Yeah, I would agree. Um, if I'm being honest, I should pick Texas, but I can't. So <laughs> I'm going to pick Washington uh, because I, I, I need to manifest bad things happening for the University of Texas. Yes. <laughs> your uh, your animosity with them over volleyball is seeping over here. Well, not just volleyball. <laughs> Anything to do with that damn university. All right. Uh, then we have the Cheez-It Bowl uh, with uh, Oklahoma and Florida State. Uh, obviously, uh, Oklahoma uh, is coming off of a disappointing season for them. And I don't know the specifics, but I got to imagine they've had quite a few, you know, people going to the draft or choosing not to play in the game and things of that nature. Um, so I think I'm going to decide with Florida state on this one. Okay. I'm going to choose Oklahoma in that, in that matchup. Okay. That's totally fair. You know, the ACC hasn't been great this year, so you may be right in that regard. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm just feeling like both, neither one of those teams has had the kind of year that they were expecting. So you're probably talking about two groups of players that are, you know, highly disappointed in the year that they had. So who really wants to play, right? right. Who's at, who's going out there to play? And I, I have, I just have this feeling that, uh, you know what, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the Oklahoma coach. I mean, his job's not on the line, but 
this may go a, a ways in determining whether he's on the hot seat for next year or not. You know, like if he loses this game, he's definitely on the hot seat. He might still be anyway, but but he definitely is if he loses this game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think he's yeah he's in he's in the hot seat regardless. Um, but you know, we'll have, we'll have to see how, how hot. Right? How hot is yeah. the seat? Is it lukewarm right. or is it scolding? <laughs> right. Uh, this is interesting. In the Cotton Bowl, we have uh, USC versus Tulane. Uh, Tulane being the highest of the uh, group of five teams. Uh, so they're again they're shot against uh, USC. Um, and obviously USC is disappointed because they had their chance to go to the playoff and they lost to Utah right at the end. Um, and I'm sure Tulane will be, come to that game with a good uh, plan, you know, in place uh, and uh, to try to exploit USC. You know, we made a point of the fact that USC's tackling was truly abysmal against Utah, especially in the later part of that game. Um, so that might be something that Tulane could take advantage of. But at the same time, I can't quite uh, find myself rooting for them to win. Or not rooting for them, predicting that they will win. I will root for them, but uh, I'm going to go with USC winning this one. I would say that's true. Also, I would go with USC as the W also. And I would add only this comment that that I have a feeling USC's uh, bowl game practices are going to be quite physical. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> And they're going to work hard on that tackling. I think you'll see a, a way better tackling performance by USC. And the talent differential between those two teams is obviously significant. And I think that'll show up. Yeah. I think it will be a blowout, actually. <laughs> well, fair enough. Uh, and then we have the Citrus Bowl with the Purdue team we were mentioning earlier playing against LSU, um, the runner-up in the uh, SEC championship game. Uh, and even before the announcement that Purdue's quarterback wasn't going to be there, I was kind of leaning towards LSU. Now with Purdue's quarterback not being there, I definitely think LSU is uh, going to win. Purdue's quarterback and uh, Purdue's coach is gone. Um, I mean, and some of his assistants. I mean, Purdue's a disaster now as far as I'm concerned. I think LSU wins this, and it's huge. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay, so now we're kind of getting into the bigger games. So these are the ones we'll give proper score predictions for. Uh, so okay. We, we have the Sugar Bowl, which is Alabama versus uh, Kansas State. You know, we kind of joked last podcast how Kansas State won the uh, Big 12. The reward is getting to play against Alabama. Um, so uh, I'm going to uh, be optimistic here. I'm going to say that Kansas State uh, pulls out a uh, another – a really great uh, performance, you know, perhaps with some contribution from Adrian Martinez, if he's had some time to heal on his injury. Um, and they narrowly managed to beat a unmotivated uh, Alabama team. Uh, let's say in a uh, 30, 35 to uh, 32 game. Okay. 35, 32. Well, I'm going to say that uh, I-, I kind of agree with you. I, I, I think, Kansas State's going to be very excited to be there. They're going to they're going to they're going to play well. Kansas State will go down there. They'll prepare well and they're going to play well. Uh, now they do not have the talent to match up with Alabama, but Alabama has had a significant number of departures uh, from the portal. I think uh, it, it certainly would suggest that there is a bit of a mail it in attitude uh, on the team right now, just based on you know the decisions of some of those teammates. So. It can't all be great over there in Tuscaloosa. 
but uh, the, the talent disparity is quite large. And I have a feeling that uh, there's a coach over there that's had his ego bruised. <laughs> you know, and so I'm gonna pre- I'm gonna predict Alabama wins, and uh, and it, it's gonna be close for uh, you know a half, even three quarters, but then Alabama's gonna pull away and end up winning, um, you know, by like fourteen. So what would that? What would I have to do to make that happen? It would be like forty-two. Uh, no, let's say uh, let's make it thirty-five to twenty-one. Okay, fair enough. I think that definitely could happen. It depends on what we see on the field. Uh, in the Rose Bowl, we have uh, Penn State versus Utah, um, the Pac-12 champion versus the third best team in the Big Ten this year. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, Penn State has a lot of talent and everything, um, but Utah really impressed me with what they did against USC. You know, I think they're going to be motivated because uh, they knew they weren't going to get in the playoff, uh, but they managed to upset, play spoiler with USC. Um, so I think they'll come with uh, plenty of fire in their step uh, and managed to get the W there. Um, could be a bit of a high scoring game. I could definitely see that. Uh, so I'll say that Utah wins uh, 45 to 35 Penn State. I'm going to agree that it's going to be that same way. Uh, I think Utah is the, is a very complete team. Been very impressed with them as well whenever I've watched them play. And Penn State has some talent, but I also feel like they have some gaps. And, uh, you know, they were able to cover those, especially when they played at home. But then they would, um, you know, uh, play against some quality opponents and and struggle uh, and so and I just I, I don't see uh, Penn State's current quarterback as being a guy that's you know leading the team and as being the difference maker so I'm going to predict a Utah victory and I'm going to say that it's going to be wow uh, I'm going to say it's going to be a little lower scoring uh, uh, so I'm going to say it's going to be Let's go 35-17, Utah winning. Okay, interesting. Uh, And we have the uh, Orange Bowl. Uh, This is a matchup we called out as very interesting on the last podcast, uh, Tennessee versus Clemson. Um, Oh, yes. Now, uh, if this was happening earlier in the year, I think I definitely would have said Tennessee, uh, but they had their kind of tough loss to uh, South Carolina, uh, that was ugly for them. Uh, they did rebound and crush Missouri 66-24. Uh, 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 oh, I'm sorry. That was actually the week before. They beat Vanderbilt 56 to nothing in the following game, though Vanderbilt's one of the worst teams of the SEC, uh, whereas Clemson uh, switched up their quarterback and managed to have a very solid win over NC State in the uh, conference championship game for the ACC. Um, so I'm going to bet on... Uh, the fact that Clemson uh, seems to have found their guy at quarterback and the fact that, you know, they're very experienced with playing in these high pressure situations. You know, Dabo Sweeney obviously has been in the college football playoff uh, numerous times. Uh, so I'm going to go with Clemson winning this one, uh, though. I think it'll be close. I think it'll be a good game. Uh, so I'll say it'll be a bit lower scoring uh, and it'll be uh, 31 Clemson to uh, 24 Tennessee. Well, I'm going to go the opposite way and I'm going to say it's going to be Tennessee is going to score 45 points 
and uh, Clemson is going to score 31. Okay. And what's your reasoning there? Okay. So uh, I just feel like Tennessee is a team that's got some young talent. It's a new coach. They're, they're feeling their way. They're learning. And, and so the trajectory of improvement that I believe could occur uh, for Tennessee over the course of uh, the preparations for the bowl game are, are greater than the improvement that I could see from uh, Clemson during that same time frame. And I, 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 w- I like you, I would have agreed that I, I viewed them as very similar teams, you know, uh, uh, two weeks before the end of the season. I now feel like Tennessee is going to be able to take advantage of that time and with their very talented but somewhat inconsistent quarterback play, uh, that guy could very well play really well in this bowl game after having all those repetitions to get better. Um, so uh, that's why I think Tennessee is going to be – they just have a, a few more athletes in the right spots than, than Clemson does this year. Yeah, that's totally fair. And now we're getting to the uh, playoff games, the big ones. Uh, in the Peach Bowl, we have a uh, number four Ohio State versus number one Georgia. Um, you know, we mentioned on the previous podcast how uh, Ohio State kind of came to the Michigan game with a uh, pretty rough uh, defensive game plan, you know, kind of daring Michigan to throw it, and then they proved that they could. Uh, and kind of similar to Michigan, Georgia is a team that's really uh, succeeded on their uh, running game and their very good defense. Um, but also uh, Stenson Bennett, their quarterback, uh, has shown that he can throw it. And he, they had a particularly high-scoring game uh, in the SEC championship against LSU. Um, so if Ohio State uh, you know, tries to do something similar against Georgia, I think it could blow up in their faces spectacularly. Uh, but I think their coaches are smarter than that and will come in with a different game plan that could give Georgia more trouble. Um, so I think it will be a, a close game, a competitive game, but I think that in the fourth quarter, uh, Georgia will pull away, uh, and end up winning the game. Cause I do think they are the, probably the most talented and overall best team in the country this year. Uh, so I will say that, uh, Georgia ends up winning, uh, let's say, uh, 38 to 28 over Ohio state. Wow. I, I like your summation. I like uh, where your head's at on that one. Uh, I kind of agree with you. I feel like um, Ohio State's got a ton of talent, uh, but uh, they've had a, a couple of departures, I know, and I think Georgia has too, but but uh, I'm maybe more aware of the ones at Ohio State. Um, and um, uh, I think Ohio State was embarrassed, frankly, by their uh, uh, game against Michigan. And so I, I do expect them to play better and to have a really good game plan. But I think Georgia collectively is, is, is the more talented team. And uh, um, so um, I, I think uh, Ohio State is, like you said, is going to hang around and be able to match score for score with those guys for a while. But eventually Georgia will lock it in and slow them down. And once that happens, then Georgia will keep scoring and, and separate towards the end of the game. Um, so uh, I'm going to say 42 to 28. Okay, a bit higher scoring than me. And then, uh, of course, we have the Fiesta Bowl, which is uh, number three TCU versus number two Michigan. 
Uh, we said previously that uh, we thought this was a pretty good matchup for Michigan. You know, they would have preferred TCU certainly over playing Georgia. Um, and TCU uh, lost, obviously, in the Big 12 championship game, but managed to get in regardless because they had a, a perfect record going into that game. Uh, and their quarterback uh, showed his ability, uh, Max Duggan, uh, showed his ability to really put the team on his back and, uh, you know, get them into overtime and, you know, uh, keep themselves in the game. You know, and it was really some questionable kind of uh, play calling in the overtime that may have cost them uh, that W. Um, so I think, you know, it's an interesting matchup. Uh, but I do think that uh, Michigan, you know, has played really focused throughout the year. You know, they're still riding the high of their big win over Ohio State. Um, and I think that uh, they're well positioned with their defense to uh, sh show some challenges to TCU that they haven't had to face so far in the Big 12 this year. Uh, so I'm going to predict that Michigan wins. And I will say uh, maybe it's a little bit lower scoring. Uh so let's say uh, 28 Michigan to uh, 17 TCU. Okay. Well, uh, so I, I'm going to uh, say that, yeah, I, I, again, I think Michigan's a team that is on an upward trajectory. So these uh, few weeks here that they're going to get to prepare for the game, um, especially given that they lost their best player, their running back for the season, uh, you know, this is going to give them time for their other running backs to more effectively integrate themselves into the offensive um, arrangement and game plan. Um, and so I, I would expect a, a really good performance from Michigan in this game. Um, uh, I would also expect TCU to perform well, but I think there is a difference in the talent level across the board of the, 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 you know, top 44 on the Michigan squad, I think it's just better than the top 44 on the TCU squad. I think the one area where TCU could really surprise and maybe, um, um, uh, make this really, really interesting is TCU is a, is a, is a team with, with some great speed and that speed if used properly deployed properly could present some problems for Michigan. But I think ultimately Michigan, um, uh, you know, wears them out and dominates them uh, in that fourth quarter. Uh, and if that happens the way I expect it to, I think the score will be quite substantial. Um, I'm going to say that it's going to be 48 to um, 24. Wow. 48 is a lot. <laughs> I know. Well, you're right. And I might be overthinking it, but I just have a feeling that once Michigan gets rolling, much like they did against Ohio State, I, I could see some big, uh, wide-open plays that happen. Okay. Now, uh, final question here. Um, obviously, based on our predictions, we think our expectation is that number two plays number one, Michigan plays against Georgia in the national championship game, and we'll predict that you know later on when we actually know who the matchup is going to be. Uh, but... Right. What do you think about the possibility of an Ohio State versus Michigan matchup in the national championship? You know, two Big Ten teams playing each other. Um, I know in the past you've said that you don't really like the idea of two teams from the same conference playing each, each other. We've opposed that in the past when it's been like Georgia and Alabama in an SEC matchup uh, in the big game. Um, but because of the historic rivalry aspect, would you be... Is that what you're rooting for? What are you kind of hoping for as a matchup? Okay, a uh, couple of things. 
One is, um, I, uh, I I would say that uh, when you only have four teams in a playoff like we do this year and before we move to the 12-team arrangement, it is frustrating when you end up with two teams from the same conference. First and foremost, uh, I, I, it, it makes the interest uh, what I would describe way more regional, and that was proven out by the fact that the Georgia-Alabama game from last season was uh, uh, not as highly watched. The, the, the television ratings for that, the number of eyeballs, was down considerably uh, from some of the previous championship games because, uh, at least initially, uh, and then when, when it became apparent that Georgia was going to win, I think the numbers probably went up towards the end. But the bottom line is it, uh, it, it was an interesting game for football fans, but the average uh, or casual fan had far less interest in it, especially if you weren't from the Southeast. So uh, similarly, I would say that a, a rematch of Michigan-Ohio State, while having some interesting storylines, would also make it a very regional uh, game that wouldn't have uh, a lot of interest from the Big 12 or the uh, Pac-12 or the ACC even. Um, and so, you know, it wouldn't probably draw the, the national audience you're trying to draw. Um, so my preference probably would be a Michigan versus um, a Georgia final because I, I would be intrigued to see that, you know, the powerful Michigan offense get a chance to redeem themselves for last year. Remember Georgia just kicked the snot out of them last year in the matchup that they had last year. Uh, so I think there would be uh, some awareness of that, some memory of that uh, within the Michigan program that might help motivate them to make sure that they're ready to be uh, at their best. Uh, Michigan did not play a very good game in that, in that matchup. Um, so that would be kind of uh, a great storyline and, I think would then create more interest. I mean, the whole SEC versus the Big Ten in a national championship would bring uh, some interesting uh, dialogue and things of that nature as well. Yeah, I, I generally agree with you. I think in terms of the possible matchups we could have, my number one favorite is Michigan versus Georgia. They're also kind of similar in terms of their overall philosophies, right? Both have uh, very good defenses, both like to run the ball a lot, uh, but have the ability to pass it when they need to. Um, and like you say, there's the aspect of the rematch from last year, you know, and redeeming themselves. So, uh, I think that would be, you know, a good, uh, a good matchup for sure. If it isn't that, I would say then that, um, uh, TCU versus Ohio state would be my second favorite because that would be the upsets, right? If Ohio state upset Georgia and TCU upset Michigan, uh, then that would be, you know, an unexpected matchup. Uh, and would get some yeah. eyeballs probably from that angle. Um, Absolutely. So, so those are the two I'm kind of rooting for. Gotcha. Okay. That would be fascinating, that that matchup. Um, um, boy, would that piss off Michigan fans. Oh, <laughs> I mean, seriously, would that just be the worst, right? You finally are getting the number, and then Ohio State goes back and gets into the championship, and you don't. You have the opportunity, and you blow it. And then, and then they get a matchup with a TCU team that you're probably kicking yourself for losing to. You know what I mean? I mean, I can just hear them whine. <laughs> yes, I, I can definitely imagine the whining as well. So, uh, you know, the, there's some 
even with the departures of players and things like that, we'll still be watching these bowl games. There'll still be some oh, good matchups and, you know, things to crown this year of uh, college football as we look ahead to new eras of 12-team playoffs and new conference alignments and uh, lots of change coming down the line. Right, exactly. Exactly. Well, and I got to I got to figure out how to re- reignite my my passion for a sport that has just made so many horrible decisions for itself over the last decade, especially the last 5 years that I think have taken us in in directions that I'm not excited about. Somehow I've got to come to terms with these new realities and uh and and get excited about it again. And I think having a Nebraska team that actually is competitive and plays hard every every time out, right? Like with great effort every time out, even if they lose, would go a long way in making me feel better about the sport. <laughs> Shocker. If man's favorite team plays well, he feels better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think any psychologist would uh, could have told you that one. <laughs> but I understand where you're coming from. So uh, we'll be coming to you guys uh, over the holiday break here and talking about some of these other games and recruiting news. Uh, so look forward to that. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can reach out to us at huskerpeat 13 at gmail.com. You can also find us if you search for College Football Throwdown on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can leave us a rating or review there. We always love hearing from the fans. So thank you all out there for listening, and thank you, Dad, for joining me for this episode. And until next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red.